Well, thank you, ladies. I was thinking, and as I was standing in the back, the only one missing from that quartet was your mom. So, but I know that's your mom's heart, right? Whenever you talk to um, Rhonda, it's all about Jesus, right? And so it's a, it's a joy just to see your daughters walking in your footsteps. Rhonda, we love you guys. And Mike, I'm sure Mike's out in the foyer. Just walking away, proud dad, right? Anyway, we love you guys, and uh, thanks for loving Jesus. So, well, two weeks ago, as you know, I had the opportunity of being out in California at the Shepherds Conference, which is a conference hosted annually by Grace Community Church, where I was uh, trained and equipped there in the church and, and college and seminary. And every time I go back there, I'm just reminded of how privileged and blessed that I've been to, to have had some time there, some uh, training and equipping there. And the reason why I say that, because it is undoubtedly the, the strongest, healthiest, most spiritually mature church I've ever been around, I've ever had the privilege of being a part of, ever been exposed to. And, and I've often thought, I go away every year thinking, well, what is it? What's the key? What's the secret of, 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 of such a strong, healthy, mature church? Who or what is behind all of this? Well, I've concluded that there is no secret. It's rather very simple. And I can summarize it in two words. And it's not John MacArthur. It's sound doctrine. And I've come to learn over the years that the key to building a strong, healthy, mature church filled with strong, healthy, mature believers is simply that, sound doctrine. Now, you wouldn't know that from reading contemporary books on the church and on church growth. In the past 25 years or so, there have been a ton of books written seeking to define the the marks of a good church or the keys to growing a church and building a church. And the focus of most of these books is, is things like the location of the church or the convenient parking or the elaborate facilities or the exciting programs for children and youth. You've got to have, got to have a great youth program. You've got to have great children's ministry and a dynamic leadership team and a, a comfortable, non-threatening atmosphere. And these are just some of the things that, that you hear about or read about. And you'd be hard-pressed to find any mention of sound doctrine in any of the lists of the marks or keys Right of a good church, of a, of a God-honoring church, a growing, thriving church. In fact, the concept of sound doctrine is virtually non-existent in these books on church growth, which is unthinkable to me in light of what the Bible teaches about the priority of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the mark of a good church. It is the key to growing and building a strong, healthy church. Sound doctrine is the very foundation of the church. And if you carefully study the New Testament, you can't miss this fact. Because the phrase sound doctrine is used over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. And the most concentrated use of it is found in the pastoral epistles, what we know as First and Second Timothy and Titus. And these letters were written by Paul to two of his young disciples that he had trained and commissioned to be pastors, Timothy in the church at Ephesus, and Titus among the churches on the island of Crete. And in these three letters, Paul pours out his passion for ministry, and he gives them very careful instruction on how to lead and build and grow a church. 
And one of the re- recurring themes weave throughout these, these three letters is the importance of preaching and teaching sound doctrine. And I'll never, I'll never forget going through these uh, pastoral epistles a number of years ago. I think it was maybe five years ago now. We looked at 1 Timothy and then Titus and then 2 Timothy in chronological order. And I, I just remember being so impressed uh, about this concept, just leaping off the pages of those letters of this idea of sound doctrine. So I want to return to those epistles this morning and just remind you and refresh you in, in, with this concept of sound doctrine. And so before we look at these letters, just more of in a survey overview fashion, let me give you a basic working definition of what I mean by sound doctrine or what the Bible means by sound doctrine. The word sound is the word hygieno in the Greek. It means correct, orthodox, healthy, or wholesome. It's that which produces spiritual life, growth, and health. It's the term from which we derive our English word, hygiene. And so when you think of hygiene, you think of something that's clean, something that's safe, something that's nourishing to the soul. And so you've got sound, but then you also have doctrine, which is the word didascalia, which means teaching. Uh, Doctrine is simply the truths and principles taught in the Bible. It's the content of God's word. It's, It's biblical instruction. And so that's what... The Bible means by sound doctrine. Now, the opposite of sound doctrine is, of course, what? False doctrine. Or as Paul referred to it as a different doctrine or a strange doctrine. Hetero didascalia is what he called it. In fact, he coined, it seems, that word, that term, to describe teaching that was different from what Christ and the apostles taught. False doctrine is teaching that distorts or misrepresents the truth of God's word, it's error, it's deception, it's lies, it's heresy. That's what we mean by false doctrine. It's very dangerous stuff that is deadly to the soul, and it spreads like gangrene within the body of Christ and creates all sort of health problems in a church. And so with that definition in mind, let's take a closer look at the pastoral epistles, and I want to show you what Paul had to say about the significance of sound doctrine in the life of the church. And I've organized what Paul uh, said here uh, regarding sound doctrine under the following three headings. First of all, we're going to see the jeopardy of sound doctrine. Secondly, we're going to see the urgency of sound doctrine. And thirdly, we're going to see the beauty of sound doctrine. First of all, is the jeopardy of sound doctrine. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And Paul is, is right out of the gate. After his formal introduction, he goes right to the matter at hand, right to the issue that was utmost on his heart and mind. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he said, I urged you, Timothy, upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. In other words, stick it out, Timothy. Don't walk away. Don't be uh, uh, pushed out. Uh, don't, be, don't let them run you off. Remain on at Ephesus. Why? So that you may instruct certain men not to teach, what? Strange doctrines. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they did not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. 
But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And here it is. And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So you have here bookended at the very beginning in this opening paragraph, you have strange doctrine and sound teaching or sound doctrine. Notice chapter 4, he develops this concept here, verse, uh, verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He warns Timothy, he says, The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times or later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is another phrase uh, that's really synonymous with false doctrine, doctrines of demons. In other words, uh, this is the true source of heresy. It's demonic. He says, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And so he's warning uh, Timothy of apostates who are demonically inspired and who teach false doctrine. Notice chapter 6, verse 3. Again, just highlighting everywhere he mentions the idea or the concept of doctrine. Verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And then, of course, we have in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, a verse that we're very familiar with. It really was the foundational verse uh, on which we built the whole concept of expository listening, right? That book that we wrote together a couple years ago. Notice Paul says, For the time will come, Timothy, when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And then over in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, Paul warns Titus, he says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that should not, they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so they may be, what? Sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And so the point is simply this, that ever since Paul's day, Satan has raised up false teachers who who have subtly introduced false doctrine into the church. And these are men and women who play fast and loose with Scripture, and they teach strange things that are different from what the Bible teaches. And consequently, they undermine the truth of God's word and they they place sound doctrine in jeopardy. 
That's what we're talking about, the jeopardy of sound doctrine. And if these heretics are not confronted and corrected, as Paul is admonishing Timothy and Titus to do, then sound doctrine is at risk of being wiped out altogether. And I think we know that sound doctrine is becoming an endangered species within the, within the church today. The more and more people are turning away their ears from the truth, right? Wanting to have their ears tickled. They want their self-esteem stoked, stroked, or their, their, their senses stimulated, or their minds entertained. And nowhere, I think, is this trend more apparent than in modern-day preaching. And I appreciate what one preacher has pointed out. He said, there is a trend today away from expository doctrinal preaching and a movement toward an experience-centered, pragmatic, shallow, topical approach in the pulpit. Churchgoers are seen as consumers who have to be sold something they like. Pastors must preach what people want to hear rather than what God wants proclaimed. And so we see here the principle of supply and demand being played out in a lot of churches today where church growth surveys show that people don't want to listen to long doctrinal sermons anymore. They want to hear lighthearted, entertaining, uplifting talks. And so more and more preachers are deciding to give people exactly what they want. And so they, they deliberately and intentionally avoid any negative, controversial, confrontational elements contained in the scriptures. They skip over them, they go around them, um, and very seldom it seems that doctrine is taught with any kind of depth. Most messages today seem to focus on solving people's problems, right? Addressing people's felt needs. You know, what are the needs that we're feeling in life? Well, it's, a, it's relationships, it's, it's, it's marriage, it's family, it's finances, it's, 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 it's those kinds of things. So let's, hey, if we're going to attract a crowd here, let's, let's do a series on the family. Let's do a series on marriage. Let's do a series on finances, which, again, all important subjects to, to address. But what you have to be careful of is, is, is if you just become a, a kind of a topical church, if you will, is that the Bible begins to be viewed like a self-help manual filled with all these practical pointers for dealing with issues in your life. And so consequently, the weakening of preaching has resulted in the weakening of the church. One man put it this way. He said, this is the age of sermonettes, and sermonettes make Christianettes. And I think you would agree, we are part of a generation of Christians who are not only biblically illiterate, in other words, we really don't know our Bibles that well, but we're also suffering from spiritual malnutrition. Walt Kaiser, one of my favorite authors, has written a, a very helpful book. It doesn't sound very interesting or exciting. The title is Toward an Exegetical Theology. You're like, oh, well, okay. Uh, time to get a quick nap here while he quotes from this book, right? No, he says some very compelling things. He said this, quote, It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health. She has been languishing because she has been fed junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives, all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are harmful to their physical bodies. And we are. We, we are in a very uh, health-conscious 
uh, culture now, maybe not so much in Texas, right? Right, got to keep eating that fried stuff. That's all good, right? But seriously, there's a lot of uh, talk and discussion in the news and in magazines and newspaper and on the webs, on the websites about eating healthy and, and exercising and getting adequate rest. And, and, and we're a culture that's all about that. And I think you would agree the, simple, uh, the simplest uh, element to good health is eating the right kinds of things, right? In fact, we have an expression that we are what we eat. And um, I think that can be applied to our spiritual lives as well. And that's why the church is, is, is in such poor health today, because we've been gorging ourselves on junk food. And uh, junk food tastes good. I'll be the first one to admit, I love a zinger, package of zingers, man. That's nothing like a package of zingers from time to time, right? Tastes good going down, but it provides no lasting nourishment to our bodies. And so while many believers are sadly malnourished, I think there's others out there who are actually starving because of a lack of sound biblical instruction. And I'll never forget reading an account from Eric Alexander, who was a a well-known Scottish expositor, ministers over there in Scotland, and this is what he said. He said, I had a young student telephone me one evening from an English city where he was at university. He said, I've just traveled two and a half hours by bus to the opposite side of the city. I've been here for eight weeks and I've been around to every church that I've been told about, which is remotely evangelical. He said, I've heard some marvelous music. I've been under some remarkably scintillating talks about current issues I've listened to dialogue, I have seen drama and dancing, I have been witness to all kinds of excellent occasions of worship, but I'm sitting back in this university residence this evening asking myself the question, will nobody in this city feed my soul? And I think like that English university student, people today are starving for God's word and some of them don't even realize it. They haven't even got to the place where they're asking themselves that question. Will somebody feed my soul? They know something's missing. They're just not sure what. And when they finally get a taste of it, they realize, oh, this is what we've been missing. And only a fool would, would leave the banqueting table of God's word to go back and try to survive spiritually on, on junk food. And so we see, first of all here, uh, in, in the pastoral epistles, the jeopardy of sound doctrine. The jeopardy of sound doctrine. Secondly, that really leads us to, to, our, to our second point here, and that's the urgency of sound doctrine. The urgency of sound doctrine. The reality that there's, there has always been, and there will always be those who are trying to jeopardize sound doctrine, requires that we maintain an attitude of urgency regarding sound doctrine. That, that we need to be passionate about sound doctrine. And, and Paul points out several things about which we must be passionate, that we must feel a sense of urgency about when it comes to sound doctrine. First of all is protection. Protection. Again, back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. Paul writes, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 
Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was the gift of teaching, I believe, a gift of exhortation, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of the hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. You get a sense of urgency here when Paul is writing to Timothy. Now notice um, chapter 6, verse 20. This is how he concluded his first letter. And tell me if this doesn't sound urgent. Oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy, he says, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. He picks up this urgent theme in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Notice he says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, one of the qualifications of an elder and a pastor is that they need to be able to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And he goes on, as I already read, mentioned those that had fallen away from the truth. We're going to see here in a moment that the Apostle Paul was not shy about mentioning heretics by name. And I know that is an uncomfortable, awkward, and even controversial thing to do in the church today. But there are times when I feel compelled in order to protect the Word and to protect you that there may be times when I feel the need to point out a certain movement in the church and maybe even the names of pastors or authors or TV evangelists who are involved in them. And I don't do that to be critical, to be controversial. I don't do it to make me look better or or to make our church look better as if we're the only church who's doing it right. It's not that I have a high view of myself, but I have a high view of God's Word. And I love God's Word, and it's my God-ordained duty to guard it and protect it. It's a sacred trust that Paul uh, exhorted Timothy and Titus to and also every other preacher down through the ages. And not only do I feel a, a, a great sense of obligation to God and His Word, I also feel a great obligation to God's people. And I say the things I do from time to time because I love you and I want to protect you from eating something that might make you sick spiritually. Uh, trying to g- warn you about unhealthy books or unhealthy preachers to listen to. And if I didn't say these things, because I don't want anyone to not like me, right? That's typically why we don't say things, right? We don't want people to not like us. Well, then that would mean I love myself more than I love, right, you. Frankly, I don't like it when people get mad at me, but I'd rather have you mad at me than God. So I appreciate what John MacArthur has stated in his commentary on the pastoral epistles in regards to this idea of protecting 
the sacred trust of the Word of God, of sound doctrine. He said, quote, it is the solemn responsibility of every church to solidly, immovably, and unshakably uphold the truth of God's Word. The church does not invent the truth and alters it only at the cost of judgment. It is to support and safeguard it. It is the sacred saving treasure given to sinners for their forgiveness and to believers for their sanctification and edification that they might live for the glory of God. The church has the stewardship of Scripture, the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. Churches that tamper with, misrepresent, depreciate, relegate to secondary place, or abandon biblical truth, destroy their only reason for existing and experience impotence and judgment. Very strong statement about our responsibility to protect the truth. Not only must we be urgent and passionate about protection, we also must be urgent and passionate about precision. About precision. Notice what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. I read verses 6 through 15 and stopped short of verse 16. Notice uh, chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, 16. Paul says, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Again, here is an urgent appeal. Timothy, watch out. Watch over your life. Keep, Keep close watch over your own life, your own integrity, your own character. And man, watch out for your teaching. Be careful what you teach. He went on in 2 Timothy to expand this urgent appeal to be precise when it comes to teaching God's word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, excuse me, verse 15. 2 Timothy 2, 15, be diligent, or some of your Bibles may say, work hard to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then he goes on to say why that's so important. He says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they have set the faith of some. Again, here's Paul saying, listen, Timothy, make sure you are rightly handling the word of God. Don't, don't be like Hymenaeus and Philetus who have, who have gone astray from the truth. One of my favorite professors at the Master's Seminary, who's kind of phasing out now, but he was there when I was a student years ago. His name's Dr. Robert Thomas. He was the professor of New Testament. And listen to what he's written about this, this subject of, or this topic of precision. He said, quote, people don't often go heretical all at once. It is gradual, and they do not do so intentionally most of the time. In other words, nobody wakes up and says, you know, I think I'm going to become a heretic. I think that sounds fun. You know, I've been being a faithful teacher of all these years. I'm going to become a heretic. I'm going to try see what that's like. You don't do that. He says, quote, they slip into it through shoddiness and laziness in handling the word of truth. All it takes to start down the road to heresy is a craving for something new and different, a flashy new idea, along with a little laziness or carelessness or lack of precision in handling the truth of God. 
He goes on, he says, precision is a compelling desire to master the truth of God. In more definitive terms, it's to facilitate a more accurate presentation of that truth to others and to safeguard against doctrinal slippage that leads to error and false doctrine. He says, everyone will not appreciate precision and willing and willingly assent to its importance. It takes a lot of patience and thick skin to put up with the criticism and outright opposition that will come when God's servant insists on accuracy. Rough estimates as to what this or that passage means will not do. We need qualified expositors who will take the time and make the necessary sacrifices to do their homework well and bring clarity to the minds of God's people as they read and study God's holy word. Now you know why I like that guy, right? He's right on the importance of precision in handling the scriptures. And then there's a third area of urgency here, an area that we need to be urgent about is not just, just being precise with the scriptures and not just protecting the scriptures, but proclaiming the scriptures. We need to pro- proclaim the scriptures. Again, notice 1 Timothy 6, 1 Timothy 6, verse, verses 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful of them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Here it is. Teach and preach these principles. He said that another time, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We already read that, preach and teach these things. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And then we have this famous exhortation, right? Paul's famous exhortation to Timothy to preach the word. I solemnly charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And then in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so it's not enough just to protect the truth and to be precise about the truth. You need to proclaim the truth. The, the, the truth needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be taught and preached and exhorted. One of my favorite books that I've ever read on preaching is a, a book you probably never even heard of. It's a very obscure book. It was actually a guy's doctrinal dissertation. Um, and his name is Eby. His last name is Eby. And uh, the book is entitled Power Preaching for Church Growth. And the whole premise of his doctoral dissertation was to look at all these books out there about how to grow a church and church growth. And, and, and very few, if any, even mention preaching as a key to church growth. And so his whole point is, I'll tell you what the key to church growth is, it's preaching, and it's powerful preaching. And so this is what he said in regards to our responsibility as preachers to proclaim the Word of God. He says, so what's the preacher to do in an age of fluff preaching, psychologized content, self-helpism, feel-good messages, and biblical illiteracy? 
He said, you resist and fight. You stand against the trend. You swim against the tide. You go to battle for biblical content and biblical truth. You refuse to be reluctant to preach doctrine. You decline to be an ear tickler. You revolt against the tendency to downplay doctrine. You rebel against anemic, watered-down exposition. You know that people can't survive spiritually on gruel, so you labor hard to prepare well-balanced, high-calorie, high-protein meals that will feed the soul. You like this guy yet? He says, your ultimate concern is not what people say or what they think. You don't care what the climate of the market is or what people say they want. You have a higher calling than felt needs sermonizing that aims at satisfying the customer. Your call is to please the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of lords. Your summons is to faithful stewardship. Your vocation is to declare and teach the powerful content of the whole counsel of God. The Bible calls you to preach sound, solid, firm, beautiful content, content that people must have to live before a holy God, truth that people need for the road. No concessions, no negotiations, no politicking, just straight, 100% pure, genuine, 16 ounces to the pound, biblical truth. That's what you must proclaim. David Eby, Power Preaching for Church Growth. Well, we've looked at the jeopardy of sound doctrine. We've looked at the urgency of sound doctrine, but our Discussion of sound doctrine would be incomplete if we didn't also talk thirdly about the beauty of sound doctrine. The beauty of sound doctrine. Turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And I so appreciate what Paul says here to Timothy at the very beginning. He says, but the goal of our instruction, that phrase just, Stop for a moment. The goal of our instruction, what are you talking about? Isn't, isn't the goal the instruction itself? Isn't the goal is to preach God's word? That's the goal? No, that's not the goal. That's a means to an end. Preaching is a means to an end. The goal of our instruction, the goal of teaching sound doctrine is what? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. <coughs> See, the goal of sound doctrine is not just so that we can say we're right. It's not that we can say everyone else is wrong. It's not so we can sit around and pridefully pat ourselves on the back because we know it all. It's not just to fill our heads with a bunch of knowledge. It's so that we can apply the doctrine that we know to our lives so that it changes the way we live, so that we'll be more loving, we'll be more holy and pure, we'll be more sincere in our faith. And I think this is important here that, that for Paul, especially, that, that all this emphasis on sound doctrine and confronting heresy and preaching truth, he didn't want to create some machine gun preachers, right, out of Timothy and Titus, who every Sunday they'd get up and just and mow down their people with sound doctrine, right? And, and naming names and confronting heresy, and it was all about what's wrong out there, and you, you become the church that's known for what you're against rather than the church who's known for what it's for, right? He didn't want that to happen, so he says, well, guys, time out. Just remember, okay, the goal of your preaching and teaching sound doctrine is that the people that sit under your your teaching will be more loving. They'll love God more. They'll love each other more. They'll live more pure and holy lives. They'll be more sincere and genuine in their faith. You don't want to just create a bunch of heresy hunters, right? 
that are pointing fingers at everybody else that doesn't go to their church. He goes on to, with Titus and even expands on this. Notice um, Titus chapter 1, excuse me, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. We already read that. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And interesting, okay, what is he talking about? He's saying, okay, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. In other words, teach your people, your congregation, the things that fit sound doctrine or are, are appropriate to sound doctrine. In other words, if you are sitting under sound doctrine, what does that look like fleshed out in people's lives? Don't be content to just get up and give them a theological lesson every Sunday without any application. Teach them how to live their life, right, in a way that reflects the teaching that they sit under. And he goes on to describe the characteristics of sound doctrine. In other words, what sound doctrine looks like fleshed out in a person's life, specifically the life of older men. What are older men? What should older men look like in the church, in the community who sit under sound doctrine? What should older women look like in a church and in a community who sit under sound doctrine? What should the younger women, what should the younger men, what about the slaves? How should they act? How should they be different from the rest of the world? Well, he describes it here. He says, verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. If you're an older gentleman here at Lakeside Bible Church, that's what your life should look like, right? Or at least be moving towards, right? As a result of sitting under the teaching of God's word. How about older women? Older women, verse 3, likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And so there, if you're an older lady in our church, that's what your life should be looking like or becoming like as you sit under the teaching of God's word. How about younger women? If you were in that category this morning, and trust me, I'm not even going to try to define that with women. I'm going to get in big trouble if I try to def- draw a line between who's older and who's younger, right? I'll let you guys figure that out. All of you are thinking you're in the younger category, I know. Notice, it says, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's what a young woman's life should look like who's exposed to the teaching of God's word. Accurate biblical instruction. How about young men? Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Young men, that's what you should be praying towards and working towards, is to, to have those characteristics be true, that that should be a description of your life. How about bond slaves, servants, or you could maybe even say employees, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not not, um, uh, stealing from the coffers, right, embezzling, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. And that's the bookend, right? He said, verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, verse 10, that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. In other words, that your life will make the Bible and God, right, 
and Christianity look good. You'll beautify the gospel. That's what the word adorn means. It's the word cosmeo in the Greek, which, which we get the word cosmetics, right? And we know why we use cosmetics, right? To make ourselves more physically attractive, right? In ancient times, this word was used to describe how jewels were arranged to set off their full beauty. Paul's point is simply this. Sound doctrine produces strong, stable, spiritually mature people whose lives are, are characterized by these qualities here that he lists. And when these qualities are present in our lives, we make Christianity attractive attractive to others. When we live out the things that we we are being taught from God's word, those who don't know Christ will notice something different about us and that may lead them to salvation in Christ. And so sound doctrine should result in sound living. I've thought about at some point making the theme, if you will, or the tagline of this church, sound teaching, sound living. Because there's a connection. It's not all about sound teaching. Y'all come and get, get taught the Bible at Lakeside Bible Church. Well, listen, if, if all you're doing is getting a head full of knowledge and walking out of here with a Bible full of notes, right, and, 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 and you're not, your life hasn't changed, then we've failed. We're missing the whole point, right, of Bible study. It's life transformation. And so sound doctrine, right, all this to say sound doctrine is the foundation on which we build strong, healthy mature spiritual lives. And I'm always encouraged that when we go to the Shepherds Conference, um, the thing that those who join us, and we try to get as many of our, particularly our guys to go, uh, guys in our men's training programs to go to these conferences, and the thing that, that they seem to be most impressed by are not the, the speakers, not these world-class preachers that, that give these awesome messages. While that's a blessing and a joy, they walk away impressed most by the people who are members of Grace Community Church who are serving them all week, serving them food and polishing their shoes and you know, uh, giving them something to drink or handing them a dessert or handing out a, a newsletter for the day. And they have some 700 of their church members just, just committed to, to running this conference. And, 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 and you walk away going, man, what in the world? I mean, these people are like the most humble, gracious, friendly, hospitable, genuine, sincere, loving, discerning people we've ever met. What's up with that? How'd that happen? Well, I would say it's simply the fruit of being fed sound doctrine for over 40 years. And they basically are what, they eat, what they're eating. They've become what they have been eating. Well, how does this all apply to, to us <coughs> here at Lakeside? Well, I think it applies to both you and me in specific ways. And so let me talk about you first, okay? How does this all apply to you? Okay, what, what's, what's the takeaway from this message? Well, let me read for you the words of Donald Whitney, the one who wrote that great book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He also wrote a second book, <coughs> not everyone knows about it. It's called Spiritual Disciplines within the church. And he has a chapter titled, Why Listen to Preaching in the Church? You ready for this? Hopefully this will stir you up and just affirm why you're here this morning and why you should keep coming back. He said, quote, in defiance of the world's wisdom that says no one wants to come to church and hear sermons, in defiance of the church marketing strategy that questions the value of traditional preaching and would rather replace it with something more visually stimulated, you should attend a church where you can consistently hear biblical preaching. 
He says, you need to avoid a church where the preaching does not clearly come from the Bible. Sometimes the preacher announces the text, but never really comes back to it, and or makes only passing references to any other verses from the Bible. You ever been into a church like that? I visited churches like that from time to time, and the guy will get up and he'll read a verse from the Scripture, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be really good. And then the next, the next 45 minutes, he talks about something totally unrelated. And while I may agree with everything the guy said, I get done saying, well, I don't understand that passage any better, because what he had to say has absolutely nothing to do with that passage. And so what Whitney goes on to say, <clears throat> he says, the kind of church you want to be a part of is one where when the Bible is read at the beginning of the sermon... You can be confident that what follows will be built upon it. God made our hearts and only he knows what we need most. And he made our hearts for the word of God. Nothing nourishes us like his message. And whether or not you recognize it, nothing else in worship can satisfy as what God says to us. Your soul will only be fed from God's word. Without it, you will be undernourished and suffer from spiritual starvation. He says, so keep your distance from a church that minimizes preaching or substitutes other things for it. Whenever a church allows anything else, drama, ceremony, music, video, concert, pageant, dance, to, uh, to, to compromise the primacy of the message preached, it's a sign that it has lost confidence in the preaching of God's word. He says, you don't need a church like this, regardless of how good its other programs are or how many friends you have there or how well your children like it. Remember that it is God's word that changes hearts and lives for God, not social activities. Make sure your family will consistently hear what will save them and build them up. Great ex exhortation there to, to husbands and fathers, that we need to make sure that our families will be in a place where they'll consistently hear the word of God preached. That's how this applies to you. How does it apply to me? Well, John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, said the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by the diligent preaching of the word. That's my primary task, is to feed the flock. Charles Jefferson, in his classic little book, The Minister is Shepherd, said feeding of the sheep is an essential duty of the shepherd calling. When the minister goes into the pulpit, he is the shepherd in the act of feeding. Everything depends on the proper feeding of the sheep. He said when Ezekiel presents a picture of the bad shepherd, the first stroke of his brush is he does not feed the flock. That expression, he does not feed the flock, the flock, is considered to be among the most damning of accusations which can be brought against the pastor of a church. I can't think of anything worse that you could say to me or about me that that guy doesn't feed the flock. Because that's what God's called me to do and called every pastor to do. A little over 100 years ago, C.H. <coughs> Spurgeon, one of my preaching heroes, he was deeply concerned that the church in his day was drifting away from sound doctrine, and that some of his fellow pastors were not properly feeding their flocks. And he saw them compromising the Word of God and experimenting with alternative approaches and, and abbreviated messages. And as a result, Spurgeon believed the church's tolerance for preaching was beginning to wane and and, uh, and, and put the church in great danger. And so he felt compelled to, to step up and, and boldly speak out against what he termed, he termed the downgrade. Kind of felt like the church was going down, like a train uh, going down a hill at breakneck speed without any brakes, ready to crash and burn. Listen to what he said. 
Spurgeon says, Every, everywhere is apathy. Nobody cares whether that which is preached is true or false. A sermon is a sermon. Whatever the subject, only the shorter it is, the better. That was Spurgeon's assessment of the church in his day. And he went on <coughs> to confront his fellow pastors with, this following, with the following parable. And let me just read this as I close. He said, In the days of Nero, there was a great shortage of food in the city of Rome, although there was an abundance of corn to be purchased at Alexandria. A certain man who owned a vessel went down to the seacoast, and there he noticed many hungry people straining their eyes toward the sea, watching for the vessels that were to come from Alexandria with corn. When these vessels came to shore, one by one, the poor people wrung their hands in bitter disappointment, for on board the galleys was nothing but sand, which the tyrant emperor Nero had compelled them to bring for use in the arena. It was infamous cruelty when men were dying of hunger to command trading vessels to go to and fro and bring nothing else but sand for the gladiator shows, when corn was so greatly needed. Then the merchant whose vessel was moored by the wharf said to his shipmaster, Take thou good heed that thou bring nothing back with thee from Alexandria but corn, for these people are dying, and now we must keep our vessels for this one business of bringing food for them. And Spurgeon went on to say, by way of application, he said, Alas, he said, I have seen certain mighty galleys of late loaded with nothing but mere sand of philosophy and speculation, and I have said to myself, Nay, but I will bear nothing in my ship but the revealed truth of God, the bread of life so greatly needed by the people. We know the Bible says man shall not live by bread alone, right? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that is my commitment to you, is to provide you with what you need most, and that is the bread of life, the very words of God, and to always and to only use this pulpit, which is really the rudder of this church, right, to faithfully deliver the truth of God's word so that you can become the strong, healthy, mature believers that God intends you to be, who bring him great honor and glory and can be used by him to bring others to Christ through your godly example that adorns the doctrine that you're taught every week here at this church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this subtle theme of sound doctrine that could be very easily overlooked, but it just jumps off the pages there in, in Paul's epistles to to Timothy and Titus, and we thank you for giving us this instruction, Lord, as we seek to build and grow this church, Lord, ultimately your church, but Lord, we want to do it your way, and uh, we just thank you that you've given us your word, that we know that it's your word and it's your spirit that are the two divine means uh, for building and growing a church, and so we uh, just um, re return in our hearts and our minds, Lord, to those two uh, tools, Lord, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. We're so thankful, Lord. I pray that you would help us, Lord, not to be that, that church that just has a bunch of head knowledge, but, Lord, that our, we would under, remember all this learning is ultimately for living, and, Lord, that we would live out what we're being taught, and, Lord, you would use us to, to reach others who, who need to know the truth as you have been so gracious to show us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.